who of us in here has never scratched your head over some of the promises that are found in the scriptures when thinking about those promises and putting them against the backdrop of life's realities. And they just don't seem to ring true. If you need a couple examples, how about Jeremiah 29.11? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Okay, some, you know, that one's not... That one's not terribly difficult because the passage itself alludes to not necessarily a promise for the right now, but there is a future hope way. So, so that one still gets a little dicey, but that one's not, not the hard one. But what about this one? All things, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. All things work together for good. And you know what I really hope whenever there's been a tragedy of any stripe or you know a sudden death or something in, in uh, someone who I know, their life or whatever, I, I honestly pray, Lord, don't let some well-meaning brother or sister go up to that person in the midst and the height of the situation and say, well, you know, all things work together for good. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) That's how I picture that going down. (laughs) And that's not to discount the promise, okay? But come on, if you don't scratch your head over some of these things, right, then you're a better man or woman. No, I can't say that. It doesn't work. You're a better person than I am. Oh, stop. And there are other verses too. But one of those such promises that... you know, should get some kind of a a trophy for being misappropriated, misunderstood, and certainly misapplied is John 14.14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Woohoo! All right. And don't you know that the prosperity preachers love this, which is only added to the confusion to something that truly is even, you know, really is not that easy of a passage to understand, much less to apply. Whatever you might want to make of the promise of John 14, 14, we can safely say that it can't mean what some want to make it mean, which is some sort of carte blanche promise that your magic genie Jesus is on the job To make your every wish come true. Oh, I hear you, Christian. In the spirit of helping us to better discern the Word of God, a helpful suggestion, which I've adopted over the years about wrestling with particularly hard scriptures, is that if it doesn't seem obvious what something means, and you've tussled with it, you've struggled with it, 
and you're still really no further along in understanding the particular scripture, change the inquiry. What I mean by that is instead of asking myself, what does this mean? I ask myself, okay, you haven't gotten much you know, traction on that one, so ask yourself not what does it mean, but what do I know that it can't mean? And start there. Thinking about Jesus' words in John 14, 14, and I don't want to get too far afield of today's passage, it can't mean that no matter what we bring to the Lord's attention, asking for X, Y, or Z, and then tacking on that magical, in Jesus' name, incantation, that God's going to bring it about. We know that it can't mean that, because we've probably tried it many times. Lord, um, about those Supreme Court justices who are really up there in years and who always vote for godlessness, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. Lord, about that cheating spouse of mine, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. Lord, about that overtime that, that we needed so badly. Dot, dot, dot. Lord, about that new snowmobile I've been thinking about now for two, three years, you know. Lord, we've been trying to get pregnant for three years. Dot, dot, dot. So we know that it can't be some kind of magical incantation that secures all of our desires. Well, and and this admittedly is very superficial, the immediate context of John 14, 14 qualifies the promise. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. So that. It's one word in the original. It's called a hinna clause. It is a statement of purpose. Meaning, so that. The purpose of this is so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, given what I just said, to that end, then I will do it. The purpose of Jesus when he came in doing anything he did and does is for the purpose of giving glory to the Father. And Jesus' promise about asking anything in his name is conditional on the fact that the thing the person is asking him to do above everything else is to bring glory to God the Father. And you know, the heart of man is desperately corrupt. <laughs> Lord, you know, if you, if you got me that snowmobile... Man, I could use it to witness to my neighbor. and I, We get kind of crazy, don't we? The purpose of Jesus saying what he said is to bring glory to the Father. It's not to increase our cravings. It's not to increase our net wealth. It's not to increase our net health or our ease or our comfort or fill in the blank with anything and everything. Now, obviously, like I said, this is superficial. This doesn't answer every question about the passage, but it is helpful. Two weeks ago, 
two of the disciples, James and John, two of Jesus' hand-select, hand-picked right-hand men, tell Jesus they want Jesus to do for them whatever they ask. And Mark is careful to record for us the conversation so that we understand that they're not bringing Jesus a prayer request. They are bringing Jesus an edict. And in keeping with the shepherd's heart, though, to grant Christians demands, often disguised as requests, Jesus delivers. No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, if you remember verse 38 from chapter 10, Jesus turns them down flat. And what is perhaps the most important aspect of this little interchange is that Jesus makes an important statement that we need to pay attention to. He says to James and John, after this ludicrous request, you do not know what you're asking. This isn't a consideration directed merely to these two men, but this is worthy of consideration for all of us to remember. Can I suggest a good habit to develop, to adopt into our prayer time? And that is to be mindful of the fact that while we think of ourselves as pretty smart and pretty informed and pretty intuitive and pretty all of that good stuff, we really can't be see, see beyond our arm's length, if that. So when we're talking with God, demanding, I mean requesting something, it's helpful to me to remind myself while I'm praying that God knows it all. He knows the big picture of the now and even the not yet. He knows all of the implications that a no answer and a yes answer would all give. Only God knows that. But He does indeed know it. He knows the ramifications of every aspect of saying yes or no. And I mean the ramifications not just on me personally, the one doing the asking but on people anywhere and everywhere, on the things involved, on everything. So what might seem like a very straightforward, clear, and an obviously according to your will, Lord, kind of request, I have little understanding, actually, of what it is I'm asking for. You guys don't know what you're asking for. James and John were in the moment anticipating one of the implications of what it means that Jesus just really might be the Messiah. They couldn't possibly begin to understand the complexities of Jesus' mission. They couldn't even begin to fathom the horror that awaits Him on their behalf in that mission. And if they want those honored seats that they demanded, they would have to pay the price that Jesus was going to pay. You don't know what you're asking. Yeah, you might want to rethink that, James and John. So I really don't want the Lord to fulfill my requests based on my wisdom or even my preference in the situation unless it is in accordance with His wisdom, His comprehensive knowledge, and His love. So those closest to Jesus demanded He do something and He refuses. But now where we're at in the passage in Mark, 
we're going to meet a man who also wants Jesus to do something for him. But the outcome is vastly different. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept on crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. Oh. Now remember that in the chapters leading up to this moment, how Mark frequently tells us that Jesus warned everyone, everyone from the crowds and to the individuals involved, even to the demons, to be silent and not to tell anyone who I am. But now there's a totally different response. You know the expression that timing in life is everything? Well, that axiom is heightened when we're talking about God's plans for mankind. The timing wasn't right before because it was earlier in his ministry. That's why he kept everybody quiet. Shh, i got too much to do. Things are going to escalate rapidly the more my name gets out there and who I am. And he still had way too much to accomplish in order to fulfill the Father's purposes. So Bartimaeus, like many others, sees Jesus and he begins shouting out to him. And he gets louder and more fervent, we're told. And many, it says, try to stifle his plans and his pleas to get Jesus' attention. Verse 49, So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage. Which literally means cheer up. The same crowd now that was saying, Don't bug him, man. They now say, Oh. He's calling for you. Wow. Cheer up. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Just a little side note here. Critics who have an anti-supernatural bias about the Scriptures, and I'm talking about theologians, you know, well, if it's a miracle in Scripture, that was obviously inserted by people, you know, hagiography and you know, all the building, and it didn't happen or anything else. They try to say, you know what, the man, Bartimaeus, he wasn't blind. What makes you say that? Well, look, I mean, when he's told to come to Jesus, he jumps up and he goes to him. A blind man wouldn't be able to do that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's the best you got? The people who said, hey, cheer up. Now he's calling for you. The ones who were trying to silence him. Jesus is calling for him. So yeah, Bartimaeus is excited. I can see him jump to his feet. And is it so hard to fathom that somebody went, come on, let's go. We'll, you know, we'll get you to him. Oh, golly, he couldn't have done that if he was blind. That's about the depth of the rigor of some of these theologians with degrees behind their name. It's ridiculous. That's just my opinion. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? Wow. Okay, how different this is now from the preceding passage where James and John call Jesus on the carpet and demand, What can you do for us? Here Jesus calls Bartimaeus on the carpet and offers, What can I do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. 
And immediately, unlike previous miracles that we've read about. Remember the one blind man and, and Jesus, you know, prayed and everything, but he says, you know, can you see? And he said, well, you know, I've seen, you know, men looking like trees and everything. So Jesus, you know, and he finally got his sight. No, in this case, like Bartimaeus, go, your faith has made you well. Boom. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Remember that. He regained his sight and began following him on the road. So Mark wants us to notice, first of all, the strategic juxtapositioning of the two passages. This one with Bartimaeus and the interchange I've already refreshed our memories on concerning James and John, because they have similarities and yet they have opposite outcomes. And I don't want to make too much of something here, and so I will say that it is speculative on my part, which means you can take it or leave it. It's speculative. It's not because of what the text at least clearly explains itself. So I'm going to pull some things out of this. The twelve now have been with Jesus for essentially three years. You say, well, where do you come up with that? Well, I say that because the very next vignette that we're not going to get into today, we're going to see Jesus' triumphal, as it's called, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, meaning the beginning of the climax of his earthly visit. So we're at the very tail end now of Jesus' ministry, which means three years' experience by James and John and the others. They have been with Jesus. They have participated in and have experienced Jesus in the daily rigors of life. Think about some of the situations that we've seen with Jesus and the hand-picked chosen twelve. Think of all the miracles that they've been part of in one way or another. Think of all the confrontations that they were right there with Jesus confronting demons and Jesus exercising his authority over them and experiencing the power of the one that they have been eating with, sleeping with, breathing with for the past three years. Think of the three of them, of the twelve who now went up to the mountain. And there they see mystically, magically, supernaturally, they see Jesus transformed and they see Jesus now in this, this raiment of, of just this white kind of supernatural beyond description kind of, kind of glow and aura. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah, two guys who've been dead for centuries. And if this wasn't enough, in the heart of this, there is a voice from the heavens, the voice of God interrupts their jaw-dropping reverie, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, i got to tell you, and I never thought this until, again, preparing this particular message. I didn't think of this when, I went to, when we actually were in this part of the text several weeks ago. But thinking about the whole situation, they're on the mountaintop, Jesus is there talking to Moses and Elijah, and the thing that God comes in now and says is, this is my son, listen to him. That just seems kind of odd to me. He's like, of all the things to say to the disciples in this situation, you know, it's like, well, let me tell you what's going on here. Well, take note on this, because here's what this signifies and means, because people are going to be asking questions about this, and what was this all about down the road, and they're going to be guessing and speculating. Some will touch on it, some won't. Some are going to just No, instead God says, this is my son. 
<laughs> this is just me. And I picture God like grabbing these guys and going, listen to him. Because we've already seen some of their boneheaded actions and statements and everything else up to that point even. So I guess it makes perfect sense. The one thing they needed to know was, this is Jesus, my son. Listen to him for crying out loud. And then that night out on the tempestuous sea with violent winds threatening to capsize that little fishing boat. Jesus appears to them walking on the water and Peter gets a quick lesson on how taking one's eyes off of Jesus in the midst of a storm will quickly take you under. Yeah. And these are only a few of the highlights. And I remind us all that even what Mark records is only a smattering of all the things that Jesus did and all the things the disciples of Jesus saw and heard and lived for three years, up close and personal. But now we meet Bartimaeus, who, as far as we know, has probably only ever heard of Jesus and heard of Jesus through hearsay. Remember, Instagram was still a few years away. Facebook wasn't even face papyrus. And Snapchat hadn't even begun snapping or chatting. So by word of mouth, as people would travel through towns from parts far and wide, stories of Jesus would trickle their way to the reaches of the urban centers. And James and John, presumably both with keen eyesight and fully self-employed, two of the hallowed inner circle armed with three years of personal knowledge and experience approach Jesus late in the ministry and demand, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Blind Bartimaeus, the beggar. Blind Bartimaeus, the beggar, who never met Jesus and lived day by day on the charity of passers-by, armed with only the knowledge of anecdotes from others. Here's the Jesus the Nazarene is in town, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The title used by Bartimaeus is not casual, and it is not empty. But it is, in fact, an acknowledgement that the, the, the Jesus, son of David, was restricted only to the coming Messiah. That phrase, everybody knew that was the Messiah. And that's what Bartimaeus says. Jesus, Son of David, the Messiah. The story of Bartimaeus then caps off the lessons of chapter 10 and the preceding chapters where, remember the recurrent theme that we've heard of, do you have eyes and yet, you don't see. And do you not yet understand? In the previous writings of Mark in chapter 10, Jesus has underscored that it's not the comfortable in life who are necessarily blessed by God. And in fact, ease and bounty in the good life 
are not only not necessarily, they can be, but they're not necessarily signs of God's blessing, but are far and away a detriment to one's spiritual growth and maturity. That's borne out through the centuries. Hence Jesus announcing that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he continues with a focus after that on children as he lauds them for their blessing and even their holy naivete to believe just about whatever is presented to them, which is why Jesus utters not just a warning, but Jesus utters threats to anyone who dares to stumble such little ones by presenting them with a false view of life, with a false morality, and false of all things pertaining to life and godliness. And he climaxes his thoughts on this saying, Truly I say to you, verse 15 of chapter 10, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So Passion Week is immediately in front of us. And chapter 10 concludes with the seeing rich, referring to the disciples, full of knowledge and full of experience late in the game, and yet arguing about which of them is the greatest in the kingdom. And two of them even demanding Jesus save two seats of honor for them, with Jesus turning them down flat, purposely comparing them And this is Mark's purpose through the Holy Spirit, comparing them to a blind man of poverty who comes with a very basic, even a childlike faith, who while being visually impaired could see clearly spiritually. And Jesus gives him exactly what he wants physically. I just want to regain my sight. Son of David, go. You're healed. With visual acuity obtained, the formerly blind man follows after the Lord while the currently seeing impaired disciples continue to stumble their way in Jesus' steps, making plenty more missteps along the way as we know. Moral of the story just might be what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 8. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies, means love builds up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Another way of saying this is that there's all kinds of knowledge, but without the knowledge of God, ultimately, it is useless drivel. Or in the words of the prophet Hosea, in chapter 4, verse 1, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is no knowledge of God in the land. 
for all of our technology and all of our marvels of science and ingenuity as a nation, are we closer to God today than we were 230 years ago? Are we closer to God today as a nation than we were 100 years ago? Are we closer to God today as a nation than we were 50 years ago? Are we closer to God today than we were 20 years ago? But the real question is, are we, are you and I, closer to God today than we were, I don't know when you became a Christian, a Christ follower, but are you more mature, are you closer to God today than you were two years ago, or five years ago, or 20 years ago? Because after all, the point and the purpose of all this is not just to live day by day and to live longer and to even take care of ourselves in order to stay healthy so that I am still able to play a solid 18 holes of golf when I retire, whatever that is. And you know that I have worked and I work at keeping myself fit. And I say this only because Paul said, you know, the things that you've learned and heard and, heard and received and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. Okay, Not patting myself on the back. But my point in taking care of myself as a Christ follower from day one has not been to live longer because I really believe my days and all of our days are numbered. But I want to live healthy because of the rigors of the service of Christ. And I can tell you that when I am grounded from my bike as I was for the past two weeks until yesterday, and especially in light of the last two weeks, how ironic that I should be grounded at that point in time. Because when I get on that bike and I just give it and I tack and I race hills and I dive into it, it's not so I can get home. It's not solely so I can get home, pull up my little app and go, oh, dude. You set a new personal record today on that segment, and you are now number two for the year of everyone riding. That feels good, right? But if I didn't, I'm telling you, ulcers? I think there'd be an ulcer this big in my belly, okay? As well as a myriad of other health issues. I've always told people, my goal is not to live longer. My goal is to die healthy to the glory of God. And you know me well enough if you've been around here for any length of time to know I'm not standing there going, look at me. Anything but. But I have done a few things right in my life. Just a few. And hopefully to the glory of God the Father. Let me have you stand. I'm going to ask Don Cole to come on up and close our time. You know, uh, Worship was wonderful this morning. Almost a round of applause, applause rather, to our sound and those who lead us in worship. It's just incredible. And uh, the song, we're in the frame, it says, Holy, Holy. You know, next door, our children are learning about Isaiah today and his view of God when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And as we sang that song, you know, we, it was like a crescendo building up 
Holy, holy, God Almighty. I just imagined the seraphim as they flew back and forth and they announced that. You know, we ended that. But in the throne room of God, that just goes on and on and on. I want to be awestruck like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great mercy. Lord, without you, my goodness, we uh, would just be rambling on. But you have dealt with people in the past. And when you get those people, when you get us people into that place where instead of us asking you to do something for us, but when our hearts are right, and Jesus himself would say to us, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, God, how we want to be in that place. Please bring us there to the end that you get glory. We pray it in your name. Amen.